Hey, Paul. Paul, are you with me? <laughs> yeah, Matt. Go on. <laughs> you know, Paul, if you want an adrenaline rush, you should go camping. You know why? Tell me why. It's intense. <laughs> <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But the more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, on tonight's show, we are going to be talking about adrenal incidentalomas with a fantastic guest, Dr. William Young Jr. But before we get to that, Paul, will you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. As a reminder, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I will also take the liberty of mentioning that we are joined by co-host, super producer, and my future boss, Malini Gandhi, um, <laughs> who put this tremendous episode together. Malini, how are you? I'm well. Glad to hear it. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now, Malini, can you please tell us about our wonderful guest? Yeah, we had a really great conversation today with uh, Dr. William Young. Uh, he is the Tyson Family Endocrinology Clinical Professor and Professor of Medicine in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He is the recipient of multiple education awards and is a past president of the Endocrine Society and past chair of the Division of Endocrinology at Mayo Clinic. His clinical research focuses on adrenal and pituitary disorders. He has delivered more than 900 presentations at national and international meetings, and he has been an invited visiting professor for more than 150 medical institutions. So today we had a really great conversation with him about how to distinguish um, benign from malignant adrenal incidentalomas based on imaging characteristics, as well as the nuances of working up hormonal hypersecretion setting of adrenal incidentalomas, as well as a lot more. All right, so let's jump into our first case. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. And guess what, audience? When I'm at my best, not only am I taking care of my body, but I also have to take care of my mind. And that's why I'm a fan of BetterHelp because BetterHelp makes it easy for people to get into therapy. We've talked on the show before about this. Often as people in healthcare, we take care of others, but we don't take care of ourselves, especially our own mental health. And BetterHelp just makes it so easy to get into care. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do this right from your own home. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because it's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they're gonna match you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time with no additional charge. If you want to live a more more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash curb. So the first case we have for you is the case of Mr. Matthews. He is a 68-year-old man with history of hypertension, obesity, and type 2 diabetes on metformin. And he had presented to the ED two weeks ago with left lower quadrant pain and got a CT in the ED at that time that was consistent with diverticulitis, which is now resolved. However, the CT scan had also incidentally demonstrated a right adrenal mass. The mass is 3.4 centimeters in diameter. It's homogenous with smooth borders and has an attenuation of six Hounsfield units. So you're seeing him in your primary care clinic two weeks later for follow-up. So we wanted to start first just very basic with definitions. How would you define an adrenal incidentaloma? Adrenal incidentaloma is like found in the, similar to the case you just presented. So it's uh, uh, found typically on computed image, uh, which is either going to be CT, MR, or PET scan. Um, and that scan was not ordered to look at the adrenal glands. So, so this was truly serendipitous. Um, and you find adrenal mass. The patient cannot have signs or symptoms of adrenal disease. And the mass has to be of significant size. So we use a cutoff 
uh, when I write about this, use a cutoff of one centimeter or larger. The most common question I get after giving a presentation on adrenal instantiloma is, what about nine millimeters? What about eight millimeters? Um, and the answer is, it has to be a definite mass. And if it's a definite mass that's eight millimeters, sure, that's an adrenal instantiloma. But the smaller you put that cutoff, you're not sure if it's just adrenal thickening. And we're not talking about adrenal limb thickening here. We're talking about a true adrenal mass. So that's where the one centimeter cutoff comes from. Can we, we often like to ask folks for their scripts, how they actually talk with patients about a certain topic. And I, I, it's when this comes up and you're trying to explain to the patient and follow up that they found something on their kidney or something on their adrenal gland, I always feel like I'm sort of muddling the words and trying to frame it in a non-alarmist way. And then I feel like I actually make myself less clear. Would you mind sharing with us how you describe the initial finding where we don't quite know what's going on to a patient, like how do you how do you frame that, and what does that sound like when you're talking to patients? Yeah, initially this certainly can be anxiety provoking for patients, right? Because you tell them they have they do have a mass. That's what it is. You can't sugarcoat that. They have a mass in their adrenal gland, but then I reassure them that the vast majority of these are benign and, and non-functioning. And what's very reassuring is to actually show them their mass on their scan. This is really helpful to patients to put it in perspective so they actually can see the size. And you can tell them, you know, what the equivalence is in inches. Um, and they find that very reassuring. But yeah, it's it's there's still going to be some anxiety involved. It's not like it's a lump on their arm that they can look at and push around. Um, it's something Thing they can't see or, or can't feel. What about the imaging characteristics? Because we we get so many follow-up appointments in primary care, someone had a CAT scan like this gentleman, and there's all sorts of incidentalomas that we're dealing with. But with, with the adrenal specifically, what do we need to think about there? Do we get enough information from just a, a non-contrast CT uh, or, or does it have to be a contrast CT? Yeah, Matt, that that's a Great question. The ninety percent of what I do uh, with a patient with adrenal instantiloma is based on the imaging phenotype. And when I say imaging phenotype, I'm just referring to what does the mass look like. And I get all of my information from a non-contrast CT. I shouldn't say all. Most of my information from a non-contrast CT. Um, because it tells you the density of that adrenal mass. And that really provides some information on what it may or may not be. Um, contrast enhancement uh, can help, especially if you're worried about metastatic disease, primary adrenal cancer, or pheochromocytoma. All three of those are very vascular masses, and they really light up when you give contrast. But it turns out the percent contrast washout is not as helpful as we used to think it was. Um, so we have plenty of examples, for example, pheochromocytomas that wash out contrast quickly. Uh, and supposedly they're not supposed to, but but they can. Yeah, I always I always thought like that the fancy washout study was better. I was uh, su quite surprised actually reading about this, preparing for this episode, that it seems like the unenhanced CT is seems to be good enough. Can you dig in a little more to the specifics of like what what reassures you and or what what are you paying attention to what what words should we look for when we're reading that report yeah so like we just heard about in this case it had smooth borders it was homogeneous those are two very positive factors and then the unenhanced ct attenuation was less than 10 Hounsfield units so we know it's lipid rich so i tell this patient immediately this is benign it cannot be cancer um, I don't know if it's functioning yet. I don't know if it's making a hormone, but it's not a pheochromocytoma. It's not metastatic disease. It's not a primary adrenal cancer. Now, if the unenhanced C, uh, unenhanced uh, uh, CT density is greater than 20 Hounsfield units, well, then that's lipid poor. And then that could be all those other things, right? It even could be a lipid poor benign adenoma. I look forward to the point in my career when I can just look someone in the eye and say definitively, this is not cancer. I don't know that I'm ever <laughs> going to get there just because I <laughs> I live in anxiety land. But that that would be very reassuring to hear as a patient. And for so Hounsfield units, that's that's the way CTs can measure density, right? And so less than 10 Hounsfield units, that's reassuring. And it's very unusual that I, I think I even read that maybe there's been no cancers documented as less than 10 Hounsfield units. I don't know if that's too strong a words, but 
Yeah, I never use the word never in medicine. I, I've, right. I've learned that over the years, right? So I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure somebody somewhere, right, uh, has a nine uh, Houndsville unit cancer. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, in general, we use 10 Houndsville units. And so Houndsville units are just, it's a quantitative measure of, of density. It's named after Godfrey Hounsfield. Uh, he actually invented the CT scan. He won the Nobel Prize in 1979 for that invention. Um, so the lower the number, the less dense. Uh, the lowest number you could get is air, and that's going to be like minus 600. Uh, the highest number you're going to get is about a plus 1,000, and that's bone. Um, a kidney would be plus 20 to 60. Um, fat, uh, is going to be like minus uh, 80, minus 100. Malini, what, what do you want to get into next? I know this is your, this is your brainchild here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those were really, really helpful kind of framework for how to think about approaching the imaging characteristics. Um, I think in addition to, and you already brought up that other major question of whether this is functioning or not, in addition to whether this is malignant. Um, so wanted to get your kind of general approach in terms of how do you think about a patient presenting with an adrenal incidentaloma? What patients should receive workup for um, hormonal hypersecretion and what tests should we be ordering there? So, Malini, assuming there's not something else that's obvious, for example, an adrenal myeloma, that's something that your radiologist can tell you it is. Those are non-functioning and usually we would not do any hormonal workup. Basically, all other adrenal masses need a hormonal workup. Now, if the unenhanced CT attenuation is less than 10, it cannot be a pheochromocytoma. So I would advise to not screen for pheochromocytoma because all you're going to, all that's going to happen, you're going to be dealing with a false <laughs> positive test and trying to explain your way out of that. Unless another diagnosis is obvious, like, for example, let's say it's, it's, uh, it's lipid poor, uh, it's uh, inhomogeneous, has cystic areas within it, that'd be high suspect to be a pheochromocytoma. I would not screen that patient for subclinical Cushing's. But basically, all other patients, you should screen for something that's called subclinical Cushing syndrome. All that word means is we can't see it with our eyes. I had a patient this week. I walked in the room. She's got Cushing syndrome. I can see that, right? Full round red face, supraclavicular fat pads, uh, purple red stria on the abdomen. So subclinical Cushing's, the BMI could be 18. You can't tell by looking at the patient that they have subclinical Cushing's. So all patients with incidentally discovered adrenal masses should be screened for this subclinical glucocorticoid secretory autonomy. And that's done with a baseline DHA sulfate and a one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test. And usually I also throw in a baseline ACTH level. Um, So those are the three tests I would do for subclinical Cushing's. If the patient's hypertensive, and I think you mentioned this patient's hypertensive, they should all be screened for primary aldosteronism. And that's pretty simple. It's just a morning blood test, and we measure aldosterone and renin. Renin can be plasmarine activity or plasmarine concentration. We were having a little bit of a debate about this, Paul and I, beforehand. The, The testing for adrenal incidentaloma so I let's say we're seeing this person for hospital follow-up as the primary care, and uh, this person has hypertension. Should we be giving the one milligram dexamethasone suppression test and the ordering the DHEA sulfate and the ACTH? And can you tell us like the how can we do that in a way that is interpretable that you don't have to just repeat it like the primary care didn't do it the wrong way? That's a really good question because you. A lot of clinicians want to just get all their tests done on, you know, day one. Um, you can't do that. Uh, if you're going to do an overnight deck suppression, that has to be separated. So I would get my baseline test in this hypertensive patient who clearly doesn't have a few. So I do baseline, and by baseline, I typically mean 8 a.m. labs for um, uh, ACTH, DHA, sulfate, cortisol, plasma aldosterone, and renin. And then on the next day, that evening at 11 p.m., one milligram of dexamethasone, and the following morning at 8 a.m., 
um, a blood cortisol level. And normal suppression would be less than 1.8 microgram per DL uh, with the one milligram overnight dex suppression. So it is a it is a two-day evaluation. Now, I am going to clue you in on a shortcut here. Um, the shortcut is if the DHA sulfate is above 100 microgram per DL, regardless of age or sex, um, that patient does not have subclinical Cushing's. So we all make DHEA. Now, there are different reference ranges based on age and sex. Um, and we make DHEA in our adrenals because our we have ACTH, and it's telling our adrenals to make cortisol, but it also tells our adrenals to make DHEA. DHEA sulfate has a very long half-life, uh, 12 to 16 hours. So it's kind of like my adrenal glycosylated hemoglobin. So it, 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 it's not like this, which that's ACTH going up and down. It's flat. And it tells me, have the adrenal glands been seeing ACTH the last couple of days? And if DHA sulfate's low, less than 40 microgram per DL, that's suggestive that your patient may have subclinical cushions. Whereas if it's above 100, very unlikely that patient has that subclinical glucocorticoid autonomy. So when the DHA sulfate's above 100, and this was a long tip, uh, I don't do an overnight dex suppression. Yeah, this is that. That's a test that I hadn't. It hadn't been something that I'd been ordering. We we talked to somebody about PCOS, and that was part of the the workup that she had recommended for that. But uh, I hadn't really been familiar with it as part of the workup for incidentalomas. And so, so this is helpful that you're telling us the purpose of getting that testing because I always have to look up that diagram of the cholesterol and the, the hormones and the pathway, all the different enzymes that can go wrong. So, uh, okay, so what, what we're basically, let me recap a little bit and, and then we'll jump off from there. So when someone has an incidentaloma, it's like, we're thinking, is this malignant? Could this be malignant? And is this functioning? You know, those are some of the important things to ask. And then everybody should have a dexamethasone suppression test because this subclinical uh, Cushing's is very, um, we're at, we should we should think about Cushing's for everyone because this subclinical Cushing's seems to be pretty common. And uh, if the person has hypertension, we would think about primary aldosteronism and we would check the aldosterone and renin as well. Um, and then the testing for Cushing's you said was the baseline DHEA sulfate and cortisol. And if depending on those results, we may or may not do a one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test and see if that cortisol is below 1.8 or not. Um, and you gave us the cutoff DHEA sulfate above 100. We don't have to do that that dexamethasone suppression test. The, this concept about DHEA sulfate was published many years ago, um, and then there was a very nice study that came out of the UK about two or three years ago, and then just last year we published a study from our center uh, at Mayo Clinic that that documented this phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. Um. Paul, so what do you think? Are you gonna are are you gonna be ordering any of this workup? I know you had questions about referrals and things like that. I it's one of those things where I probably will now now that I feel a bit more comfortable hearing those things, I will order those things. But I, I'm still I, I will have low threshold to be calling my friends in endocrinology. Like this, these are the types of things that make me panic. That I'm gonna do something wrong and miss something horrible. So yeah, I'll, I'll order them. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I find that the first, like I, I get these concepts, it helps me in two ways. Number one, I feel empowered to order these tests, yeah. but oftentimes the first time I order them, I want to talk to somebody about them that knows yep. more than I do. And uh, and then number two, if if this, these tests are done to my patient, I sort of understand what's going on. My patient, it gives me more street cred when my patient's talking to me and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I understand what they did and why they did it and I can explain it to them. So I think this is super useful, even if you're not going to um, pull the trigger and do the testing yourself. But I think sometimes it just takes a while to get in to see specialists and it's good to have some of the workup going ahead of time. Um, so Malini, where, where are we headed to next with this case? Yeah, so we have some some lab values for him. So as as you mentioned, given that um, he had hypertension, we ordered the um, aldosterone and the renin. Um, given that we want to consider subclinical Cushing's in everyone, we also um, ordered the DHEAS. And then we did not know the pearl yet about how um, you didn't have to get the <laughs> <laughs> the the overnight suppression test if if, um, if you had that DHEAS. So we ordered that right away. Um, 
And then given his imaging characteristics of the Hounsfield limits, um, less than 10, we didn't uh, screen him for pheochromocytoma. And so we get these lab values back. Um, his renin is um, non-suppressed. His aldo uh, to renin ratio is less than 20, so it doesn't look like a, a primary hyperaldo picture. However, we do find that his um, one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test is as normal um, with a cortisol greater than 1.8, and then his DHES is low, so suggestive of possible subclinical Cushing syndrome. Ah, so yeah, Melanie, that's interesting. Now, if the if we did get the DHA sulfate back and it was low, I would go ahead and do the overnight deck. So yeah, you you have a perfect work up there. Um, so the overnight deck suppression is a screening test. The DHA sulfate is a screening test. Um, I don't think, and but this is controversial. You asked me to make sure I say that when I bring up a controversial issue. This is controversial. Um, I uh, Because what happens down the road is this patient could go to surgery because uh, the overnight dexamethasone suppression test is abnormal. And uh, I would never send a patient to surgery based on a one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test. Why is that? Because of the high false positive rate with a one milligram overnight dex, especially in people who are overweight. So in a patient like the one you just shared with us, where it did not suppress with the one milligram overnight, I would confirm that. And how do you confirm it? You give eight milligrams of dexamethasone, 11 p.m., you measure cortisol the next morning. Eight milligrams of dexamethasone is 15 times more glucocorticoid than a human makes in a day. The cortisol the next morning in a normal person will be zero. Anything we find in this person who has an eight milligram over a dex, anything that's detectable in cortisol, is what this adrenal nodule is making autonomously every minute, every hour, 24 hours a day. So that's what I would use to then direct next steps in management, um, where then I'm not worried about a false positive test. But not everybody does it that way. Molly, the patient, our patient had. What was their morning cortisol value? Was it was it less than one point eight, or was it a, it was a, it was inappropriately? Yeah, the cortisol was 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 high, greater than one point eight. Sorry, I might have misspoke, and I apologize if I did. No, I yeah, no, um, I I just um this these things are hard for me to think through out loud. So I think we'll keep this in, so the audience uh, the audience is following with with my clarifying question. So the okay, so the person this person did not suppress. But we looked at them when we went in the room, and they didn't have the moon face, uh, the purple stria, the supraclavicular fat pads. So we're thinking this is this subclinical Cushing's. And how common is that? Is there? I, I saw some numbers out there, thirty to fifty percent. Is it? Could it possibly be that high for these patients with the incidentalomas? Yeah, if you're just using the one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression as your screening test, it, it could be as high as thirty percent. Um, if you're doing the eight milligram overnight dex, we're talking more like eight percent. In other words, there's a lot of false positives with that one milligram. And then another follow-up question, because this was such a new concept to me, this subclinical Cushing's. Why should people care about it? Are yeah. there out bad outcomes linked to it? And you know, what how do we follow this over time? Well, Matt, the way I explain it to patients, it's as if their adrenal gland is dosing them with one, two, three, four, five milligrams of prednisone that's distributed evenly over the 24 hours. And I tell them, look, as a doctor, I would never give you four or five milligrams of prednisone for no good reason, but your adrenal gland is. Could that be contributing to your high blood pressure? Could it be contributing to your hyperlipidemia? Could it be contributing to your hyperglycemia? Could it be contributing to your body weight? Could it be causing osteopenia, osteoporosis? The answer is yes, it could. The problem is I can't prove it. Uh, we don't have a way of proving that this glucocorticoid secretory autonomy is actually causing any of those morbidities that the patient has. But then I also tell the patient, again, these are patients who've had absolute confirmation of this subclinical autonomy with an eight milligram overnight dex. I tell them that this is going to go away. This is going to continue. And it does slowly increase over time. 
Again, your adrenal nodules benign. It's not cancerous, but it will slowly enlarge. It got to be 3.4 centimeters somehow, and it's going to slowly get bigger over time. And as it does, the factory is bigger, and it'll make a little bit more cortisol over time. So this isn't going to go away. It's only going to progress. So that's the rationale for thinking about doing something. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other factors in every patient's case. The younger the patient, the more aggressive my recommendations. Uh, the older the patient uh, or with a lot of comorbidities, um, I might be a little more cautious on being aggressive. And everything I'm telling you uh, tonight is assuming you have access to an expert laparoscopic adrenal surgeon. And for these patients, if you discover that, for, so for instance, in our patient who is, uh, let me just backtrack here, a 60-year-old gentleman who I might not necessarily be thinking, say, DEXA scanning, if you discover um, subclinical or you suspect subclinical um, pushings and they, they're getting this sort of low-grade uh, steroid exposure, is this someone that you might actually refer for like DEXA scanning and look for, for osteoporosis or osteopenia? Is that part of your workup for these patients? Yeah, Paul, absolutely. They all should have a bone mineral density. Once you've documented this subclinical autonomy, they should have a bone mineral density test because that may actually put you one way or the other. We talk, So we talked about uh, testing for Cushing's. We talked about, uh, and we're going to talk a little more about aldosterone and renin testing. This patient, we didn't give you characteristics that would make us think of pheochromocytoma. But if we were, if it was an adrenal nodule that was greater than uh, 10 Hounsfield units or had other imaging characteristics making us think of a pheochromocytoma, what would that testing look like? Because you mentioned you don't want to order it if you don't need to. How do you, what, what's a positive test to you and how do you order it? Yeah. So boy, Matt, there's a lot of caveats in this. So we're, now we're going to be talking about a lipid poor adrenal mass. One of the most important caveats is the size of the mass is important when we're talking about lipid poor adrenal masses. If it's less than a centimeter and a half, our most sensitive test, plasma fraction amount of efference, may be normal in a patient with a pheochromocytoma. So unlike an aldosterone-producing tumor that can be four millimeters and cause the whole syndrome, for a pheo, the factory needs to be pretty big before it's biochemically detectable. And now that so many individuals are getting cross-sectional imaging for oh, lots of different reasons, we're stumbling over asymptomatic pheochromocytomas. But even more importantly, um, pre-biochemical pheochromocytomas. In other words, they're a centimeter and a half and our lab tests are normal. Um, so you have to have a high degree of suspicion for pheochromocytoma based on imaging phenotype. The imaging phenotype is lipid poor. Um, and if contrast was administered, they light up like a light bulb. They really enhance with, with contrast. Um, now, most pheochromocytomas that are you know, three centimeters or larger are easily biochemically detectable. Uh, and in the patient with the lipid poor adrenal mass, that that my test of choice would be plasma fraction metanephrine. It's the most sensitive sc biochemical screen we have. Oh, good. So we don't have to mess around with the 24-hour urine. <laughs> I had the same reflex response, Matt. And we were we were talking about imaging before. Uh, just just to say it out loud. So. Unenhanced CT um, can be can be an okay way to detect some of these. And then you you said that the CT with all these fancy washout studies is not not as helpful um, as we used to think it was. And then there's MRI and MRI tests because sometimes I I feel like this happens sometimes where we'll have a CAT scan and then the radiologist asks for another CAT scan maybe with some attention to the adrenals or an MR or they say or an MRI. Can you just talk about that? Is there any any preferred tests that we should get as follow-up to the initial, an initial? So usually what it is, is the patient had a contrast-enhanced scan as their only scan to begin with, whether it was, you know, a CT chest looking for a PE or something. Um, and then we really do need some measure of li the lipid status of the mass. So that's either going to be an unenhanced CT or it could be an MR. Uh, with chemical shift imaging, it, it tells you the same thing, the lipid content mm. of the mass. So 
MRCT would be equivalent in that regard. That's probably what it is. That's I, I hadn't made that connection. It's probably the contrast, contrast enhanced CT that I'm getting, and then they're asking me for a follow up. We do have another case that we want to get on to and and talking about uh, aldosterone. Yeah. Paul, anything else from this first one, or Molly, anything else from this first one that you think? Paul, you looked like you're going to say something. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that's just my face, Matt. You know that. I'm just always vaguely uncomfortable. Did we, <laughs> sort of, even in the absence of sort of biochemical activity and even if the characteristics are almost entirely benign, I guess I can't remember if we talked about a size threshold where you would still be referring to surgery. Like, is there is there a time where you would still surgerize a patient even if it sounds like it's like, because as, as you say, these things had to come from somewhere and, and presumably they're, they're growing in size. So does any of this warrant surgery, even if they're biochemically boring and radiographically not that interesting? That's a really good question. So the size threshold has some basis in fact, unfortunately it gets misused and, and everyone focuses on size rather than imaging phenotype. In other words, a lipid poor two centimeter adrenal stenoloma really, really concerns me. Whereas a lipid rich five and a half centimeter adrenal stenoloma does not concern me. It's benign, right? It's big. It's benign. That two centimeter lipid poor mass, that may be malignant. It may be a pheochromocytoma. That deserves our attention. So a couple of years ago, and uh, we looked at our experience over about 15 years with 4,000 patients with um, adrenal masses. And all of those that had adrenal masses greater than four centimeters, 50% were something bad. So that's where that four centimeter data comes from. And it's real. It's true, right? Um, but on the other hand, half of them over four centimeters were not something bad. Uh, 22% or so were pheochromocytoma, and about 31% were cancer, either primary adrenal cancer or metastatic disease. But that's where that four centimeter cutoff comes. But I'd come back to what's the imaging phenotype? And yeah, if it's lipid poor, greater than four centimeters, you bet that's coming out. There's no way that should stay inside that person's body. Um, but if it's lipid rich... I guess that begs the question of like follow-up imaging, you, you know, because it could, if it grows big enough, I guess eventually it could cause compressive symptoms uh, do, is it standard to get scans every two years, five years, something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, it it does come back to the unenhanced CT attenuation. Those lipid pore masses either need to come out or follow closely. People ask me, well, how long do you follow a lipid pore adrenal mass? And I would say forever. I mean, there, are, there they can't be anything good. Uh, and if you're going to follow them, you're stuck. You're going to follow them forever. Yeah. Um, whereas I think what, Matt, you're asking about is the lipid-rich mass. So I tell um, people to, you know, get one more scan. If it's lipid-rich, there's no rush to repeat your scan. Get it in a year. If you're worried about radiation exposure, do an MRI. It doesn't matter. Uh, you just want to make sure it's not growing under observation and that the radiologist was correct the first time around. Because I've seen uh. this. I mean, I'm comfortable looking at these masses and ignoring what a radiologist says. Um, but a lot of clinicians who aren't looking at adrenals, they rely 100% on what the radiologist says. Mm -hmm. And trust me, they're not always right. Mm -hmm. So I think all these patients, for the lipid-rich, deserve one more image uh, a year later. Now, that's different than, for example, the European clinical practice guidelines. They say if it's lipid-rich, never scan them again. And uh, that that's not what I personally do, and that's not what I advocate. So this, for our patient, this 68-year-old, lipid-rich, it's 3.4 centimeters. We, I believe, based on our biochemical testing, we said this person has subclinical Cushing's. Is there follow-up biochemical testing that you would perform on this person as well? Because can that become clinical Cushing's eventually or... Uh, where I guess we already know, we, I guess we already know. So I guess clinical Cushing's, you have to see it. As you, So I, I kind of answered my own question, but what do you do? How do you follow it? Is there any lab testing that you would follow for this person? If the decision is to follow this, um, then yes, I think it's reasonable to get repeat baseline studies in a year. 
I might even throw in a 24-hour urine cortisol excretion along with the baseline cortisol, ECTH, DHA sulfate, and then 8 milligram overnight dex. Um, there is a risk that this can get slowly worse with time. The conversion rate to clinical Cushing's is very low. It's around 4%. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can happen, but it's it's a low risk. Okay. All right. So I think we should move on to our next case. This has been extraordinarily helpful yeah. so far. And uh, we have another high yield, high yield scenario for you. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. And you know, audience, I think of Grammarly as communication assistance because it helps me and the team get our work done confidently and productively so we can spend time doing other things. First of all, they have a free spelling, grammar, and punctuation suggestions, which, as I've said in the past, I never really learned grammar and punctuation very well, so I need Grammarly. And for Paul, Grammarly has a tone detector, so that way Paul can say, I don't want to sound angry in my emails, and they can help him sound more friendly or businesslike. And you deserve a break from the grind, so get there confidently with Grammarly Premium. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to sign up for an account and download. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Um, This is a case of Mr. Jones. Uh, He is a 58-year-old, has a history of hyperlipidemia and poorly controlled hypertension and refractory to multiple medications, blood pressure of um, 148 over 92 currently. And he too is found to have an adrenal incidentaloma at a similar imaging characteristics to that of Mr. Matthews. However, unlike uh, Mr. Matthews, um, his DHAS um, was normal, so we didn't uh, get the overnight depression test. But when we got his renin and aldo level, his renin was suppressed and his aldosterone level was high. Mm. Um, so we wanted to talk to you a little bit more with this case about um, primary hyperaldosteronism and, and, and the nuances of testing and managing that. Um, I guess to start with, um, one question, this is a guy who's obviously on, has, um, you know, hypertension is likely on lots of blood pressure medications. Um, should any of those be held when we're assessing for um, uh primary hyperaldo in terms of getting the lab tests? Do any of those blood pressure meds mess up the lab tests? What I'm, I'm going to tell you also is a little controversial and a little contradictory to the 2016 endocrine society guidelines uh, for which I was a co-author, um, which advises um, replacing any medications that could interfere with the renin angiotensin aldosterone axis. Uh, in other words, if the patient was on an ACE inhibitor or a thiazide diuretic, uh, the guidelines advise replacing those. I'm personally convinced that simple step is preventing clinicians from testing for primary aldosteronism. In those guidelines, we advise that all patients with resistant hypertension be tested for primary aldosteronism. of them. So there was a nice study out of Stanford. They had like 100,000 patients in their system with hypertension, and they had about 4,660 with resistant hypertension. All of them should be tested for primary aldo. Only about, I think it was 2.1% were tested for primary aldosteronism. Um, And then another study from the University of Chicago, um, again, about 100,000 patients, they looked at what was the screening rate for patients with hypertension hypokalemia? In those guidelines, we said everyone with hypertension hypokalemia should be screened for primary aldo, and it was 2.7% were screened for primary aldo. So we have a major problem in the United States that clinicians are not testing for primary aldosteronism. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. One of them is this nonsense about drugs and not knowing what to do with drugs. And so... My approach and what I've written uh, online and uh, in print is don't worry about drugs. Don't stop drugs. Just test. Nothing causes a false positive test. So you have to use a cutoff for aldosterone. We recommend 10 nanogram per DL cutoff. Above 10 nanogram per DL with a plazerine activity less than 1 nanogram per mole per hour or plazerine concentration 
less than the lower limit of the reference range, which typically would be around eight, depending on your particular assay. Um, that's a positive case detection test. Um, and the, the point about primary aldosteronism, if your patient truly has it, it's hard to make renin budge despite ACE inhibitor, diuretic, ARB, spironolactone. It's hard to make renin rise. But that's the concern everyone has, that these drugs will cause renin to rise. And I tell people, what's the worst thing could happen? You know, okay, renin's, renin's three. Well, okay, now you can stop the potentially offending drugs, wait two weeks and retest if you want to do that. But usually that patient with a renin three doesn't have primary aldosteronism. Can we talk this? Th- I, I love this point, and we've we've talked about this on the show before, uh, but just uh, not probably not everyone heard that, and I need to refresh myself as well. So if somebody who's just hypertensive doesn't have primary aldosteronism, like what would their rent? What would you expect their renin and aldosterone to look like when you tested them? So the normal relationship between renin and aldosterone is about 10 to 1. If you're talking about a plasmarine activity assay, if you're talking about direct renin, it's more 1 to 1. But it's about 10 to 1. So the reason we make aldosterone is we make renin. So if I'm on a low-sodium diet for the last three days, I'm going to make more renin to defend my volume, and my aldosterone will be higher. So if my renin is 6, my aldosterone will be 60. And that's normal for someone on a low-sodium diet. Um, so there is no normal range for aldosterone. It's what's aldosterone with respect to renin? It's that relationship. And when somebody is on blood pressure medication, you said you said it's not it's not going to cause a false positive. So what what would you expect? Just somebody that's on your standard antihypertensive, what would you expect? The the renin should not be suppressed. You're saying it should be. Uh, if it's a patient who has hypertension, they don't have primary aldosteronism, what would the renin and aldo look like there for someone that's on uh, one or two meds? So let's say the patient's on 20 milligrams lisinopril and 25 milligrams hydrochlorothiazide. So what happens with lisinopril is renin will go up and aldosterone will go down. And with hydrochlorothiazide, renin will go up. So I get the I get this phone call and email a lot. You know, oh, the renin is 25. My first question is, well, what drugs that a patient on? Well, ACE inhibitor. Well, that's what it should do. It's it's blocking. <laughs> it's blocking the action of renin. So renin goes up. So the primary aldosteronism, I think it's helpful to understand like what's normal, what, what would it look like on meds, and then what does it look like for this person who has this autonomous production of aldosterone? And those medications are important because it's actually powerful information, isn't it? If, if renin is low, and the patient is on an ACE inhibitor and a diuretic. Why is it low? It's low because they most likely have primary aldosteronism. Mm-hmm. And that that autonomous production of aldosterone is suppressing is suppressing the renin. It's suppressing renin, yeah. And it is our most common cause of secondary hypertension. Um, you know, five to ten percent, and those are low estimates these days. Um, there's, there've been some recent studies that suggest the prevalence much higher than that. And one last question about this, because this was something that I saw reading some of these papers was that when you, if you treat somebody who has primary aldosteronism and initially their, their renin was suppressed, is it true that as you get adequate treatment or adequate levels, you may see the renin start to rise up? Yeah, Matt, you read a lot and good stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> he sure does. So, so when we when we treat a patient with primary aldosteronism, our goal is to block aldo from working with spironolactone or plurinone. And you know you've blocked aldo from working when aldo can't activate the receptor cause sodium reabsorption, volume expansion, suppression of renin. So when you see renin starting to rise, say, ah, you're doing a good job. You're blocking the MR. Yeah, this is th- this is a topic that I guess, Paul, Paul what was this, like th- like 300 plus episodes ago, uh, Dr. Toff, our friend, he's a nephrologist who, who you know, treats a lot of refractory hypertension, resistant hypertension, told us about this, how he was saying that mineralocorticoid uh, receptor antagonists were, you know, for a lot of these patients with resistant hypertension, it would, it would seem to work. 
It's like magic. So I, yeah. Yeah. And then you can even sometimes start to peel off some of the other medications in those cases. So I, part of what, part of what we, why we wanted to talk to you about this topic is when you, when you order this, when you order this testing, um, sometimes like I, I see a suppressed renin, but the aldosterone is like seven or eight. It's not, it's, it's not greater than 10. It's not greater than 15 or 20, which I would have classically thought. So it, how good is that test? And is there, is there, are we ordering it wrong? Maybe is there, do you think there's other reasons why this, we might just not get that classic picture when we order it? The only rule is it should be a morning blood test because aldosterone levels fall through the day in patients with aldosterone producing adenomas. Um, that's the only rule. Having said that, this is a poor case detection test. Sensitivity specificity about 75%. So this is not a great case detection test. So if I got a case like the one you just mentioned, patients on an ACE inhibitor and a thiazide diuretic, renin's low, ALDO's only seven. I'm worried about that. Why is renin low? And I actually would go ahead and do a 24-hour urine on a generous sodium diet for aldosterone, sodium, and creatinine. And if the urine aldosterone is above 12 micrograms and the sodium is above 200 milliquons, if sodium is above 200 milliquons, that patient's volume expanded. There's no reason to make renin, no reason to make aldo. Aldo should be less than 12 micrograms. But if the aldo is above 12 micrograms in a 24-hour urine with volume expansion in a patient with low renin, that's primary aldosteronism, despite the plasma aldo of seven nanogram per deal. Yeah. So, so you give them instructions to eat a high sodium diet. Just uh, you tell them to add salt to every meal they eat that the, the day before, the couple of days before, or something. Yeah. So um, I basically tell them, look, for the next three days, I want you eating pickles, potato chips, pizza, popcorn, <laughs> McDonald's fries, <laughs> fast food. <laughs> Now, there's some people say, I can't do that. You know, these people actually have been doing a good job with a low-sodium diet. Um, and in those instances, I give them sodium chloride tabs, one gram tabs, two tabs three times a day with food. You don't do it on an empty stomach. It causes nausea. Um, and that gives them about 100 milliquilts of sodium. And if they can get another 100 milliquilts in their diet, we actually have a, a patient education for sure that clues them into where a lot of uh, the sources of sodium are in the diet. So it's pretty easy to put together a high salt diet. I'm pretty sure that every Monday morning I'd be ready for my 24-hour year in aldosterone. <laughs> <laughs> you just described my, what I ate from Friday through Sunday. So I, yeah, yeah. I, I might just check this for funsies. Uh, Paul, I worry about you. Um, <laughs> This is uh th this is really helpful and because I I had read that as well that 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 single measure of an mm -hmm. aldosterone you know is not necessarily reliable and you might want to investigate further. Um, I guess the question is if if we do think we have a case and we're we're sending them uh, what what do we do from there? What do you recommend we do? Is that is that a time to refer? I mean I, I think I think we could order this test in primary care, uh, make sure they just get them done in the morning and send them to you if we, if I guess, regardless of what the results are, if we don't understand what to do next. Yeah. I think endocrine referral, I'd have a low threshold for that. I really would. Let's say it's an older patient. I mean, empiric treatment with an MRA, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. You know, I, I, sometimes I have done that, you know, patients are on three meds for blood pressure. Uh, we do this testing, it's positive. I, I often will start the medicine. I, I still refer to either nephrology or endocrinology just for further evaluation. But I've I've heard some horror stories about people just like not starting that agent for further workup and then something bad happens if that person, you don't see them for a couple of years. Our preference is to fully work the patient up if we can uh, in mm -hmm. the first instance because once you start spironolactone, and you get them on a good dosage so that now renin is detectable, um, you know, you're out of luck. You can't do any more testing for primary aldosteronism. You you can't do adrenal vein sampling if it went that far. Um, and in other words, we'd have to stop spironolactone, wait four to six weeks, and then then reassess. So, so in general, before starting an MR antagonist, we'd 
we'd want to complete our evaluation. But let's say, like you, I think you said, it's an older patient, um, poorly controlled hypertension, you know, maybe the potassium's at the low end of the reference range. You get a iffy plasma aldo of six with the low renin. Um, sure, you could you could add spironolactone. It's a great antihypertensive drug, as is a plerinone. Uh, a plerinone is shorter acting, so it has to be twice a day. Spironolactone is long acting, so it can be once a day. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic antihypertensive drug um, class. It, it just seems like this is such a large number of patients, and the workup beyond this, like adrenal vein sampling, is is it? Do we have the infrastructure in place to test all these patients and potentially get them a curative surgery? I know that's the that's the goal. Is uh, if if we could cure their hypertension or make it much easier to manage with the with the surgical procedure, what, what are people saying about that in the field? Yeah. A timely uh, question. Um, this came up today during our our task force Zoom discussion on the next Endocrine Society primary aldosterone guidelines that we're just starting right now. Um, and everyone brings this up. You know, if we actually started diagnosing primary aldo, we could overwhelm the systems. My my comeback is I'll look forward to that day. I will relish it when it happens <laughs> because people have been saying this for a decade and it's not happening, right? Uh, yeah. When it happens, fantastic. Right now, we only do uh, about 100 adrenal vein sampling cases a year here. Um, we could easily do 600 a year. Um, so at, we have capacity at a place like this. Now, obviously, every place wouldn't have that capacity. And, and, you're, you're exactly right. If clinicians start testing for PA and pursuing its evaluation, it, it definitely would overwhelm some systems. And we are going to need predictors of early on, is this patient likely to have unilateral adrenal disease and be a great candidate for surgery? Or is this likely patient likely to have bilateral adrenal disease and we're going to treat him with spironolactone or plerinone anyway? So, those studies are going on right now to, with the hope that someday we can actually use that information uh, to, to direct which patients go on for that further subtype evaluation. Bill, so I wanted to ask about the most common cause of a, like this primary aldosteronism. What, what should we think about? Because you mentioned you're not always sure if it's a unilateral nodule or not. In fact, Matt, usually it's not a unilateral source of aldosterone. About 60% of patients, both adrenal glands are making too much aldosterone. We we call it bilateral hyperplasia. We still don't understand the underlying pathogenesis in most of those cases, whereas about 30% have a unilateral aldosterone-producing adenoma, and we do understand the pathogenesis of those patients. They actually have a somatic mutation that's predispose that patient to developing a aldosterone-producing adenoma. Um, so, yeah, so the majority have, have bilateral disease, which we would treat medically with a MR antagonist. Um, we do not recommend bilateral adrenalectomy if they have bilateral disease. It's not just not a good trade because <laughs> now they have, to, you know, they have to take aldosterone pills and cortisone pills. Um, so we treat them with spironolactone or plerinone. Yeah, and speaking of and a bilateral disease. Um, just going back to our original imagery and original case, for all of the cases we've given you so far, um, the patients have all had a unilateral adrenal incidentaloma. Let's say our Mr. Matthews or Mr. Johnson had had bilateral adrenal nodules from the beginning. What would you be thinking there as a primary care doctor? What should your next step be? That's a different kettle of fish, so to speak, um, <laughs> because now the, the differential is different. Um, it could be Underlying congenital adrenal hyperplasia could be bilateral myelipomas, bilateral pheochromocytoma, adrenal lymphoma, metastatic disease. I mean, the differential becomes much more broad. And I think you can make a case for the patient with bilateral adrenal masses, maybe rather than trying to start a workup 
to basically refer those patients to an endocrinologist as in the first instance. In my experience, my I, I don't remember many patients where I've discovered bilateral adrenal adrenal problems outside of like, I, I already knew they had a cancer and then I was like, this, these are metastatic, you know, this is metastatic. But otherwise I would be, that'd be unusual enough. I'd be like, I I need to send this person on their way. Yeah. I'd pull the ripcord pretty quick with if that was the <laughs> finally came back to me. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been so fantastic and uh, we can't thank you enough for your time. Um, so uh, can you give the audience a couple uh, take-home points that you really want them to remember from this interview? So um, 95% of adrenal incidentalomas are benign. I mean, that, that's a big take-home point. And about 85% are non-functioning. The most common autonomous function is cortisol, and we call that subclinical Cushing syndrome. And all patients should be screened for subclinical Cushing's unless Another diagnosis is obvious, like pheochromocytoma. And we screen for subclinical Cushing's with baseline cortisol, ACTH, and DHA sulfate. If DHA sulfate is greater than 100, typically we don't need to do overnight tech suppression. Uh, we screen for primary aldosteronism by measuring a morning blood test for aldosterone and renin if the patient's hypertensive or hypokalemic. We screen for pheochromocytoma if the unenhanced CT attenuation is greater than 10 Hounsfield units. If it's less than 10 Hounsfield units, can't be a pheo, no reason to screen. Greater than 10, we should screen. I didn't mention this, but 60% of adrenal pheos operated at Mayo Clinic were discovered as adrenal incidentalomas. So that old presentation of presenting with paroxysms, hypertension, palpitations, headaches, sweating, tremor, pallor, that's gone. We're finding most of these patients as adrenal incidentalomas. So pheochromocytomas, between 1% to 2% of all adrenal incidentalomas will prove to be pheochromocytoma. So if you're looking for a pheo in your clinical practice, you're wasting your time uh, looking at your hypertensive group. You should be looking at your adrenal incidentaloma group. Um, all patients need at least one follow-up image. And of all the cases we've discussed today, the ones I'm most concerned about are those lipid-poor adrenal masses and how they should be managed uh, in the short term and long term. Fantastic. All right. And we will be back with our lightning round. Tell the audience, they've, they've heard your bio, but tell them a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine. Hmm. Um... So something I, I do for exercise a um, couple times a week is I chop wood. And that's maybe a little bit different than what most people might do for exercise. That is a great answer. That sounds, uh, is that kind of a meditative thing to be chopping wood? It, it seems like it could be. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's really a good workout. Uh, number one. But yeah, it is a bit meditative. I mean, you have to have wood that's going to split. Um, so you don't want to be using elm or something, but ash and, and uh, oak are, are, are great types of wood to, to split. Now, are we using malls? Are we like sort of like, is ah. there, like looking at the specific grains? Like, I mean, how, how deep into this are we getting? See, see, Paul knows a little <laughs> bit about this. Yeah. So uh, I use a chopping axe. Um, but yeah, you could use a mall too. Sure. Uh, that's one of my favorite answers, Paul, to that question. Yep. I have to say. Yep. We become progressively less interesting as, as each year goes past, Matt. Um <laughs> Along those lines, we like to, or at least I like to ask, I've actually um, kind of run out of pop culture stuff to kind of dredge through. And this doesn't have to be pop culture necessarily, but I wonder if you could recommend book, movie, TV show, any any sort of piece of art or literature that you've enjoyed recently that you think our, our listeners might enjoy as well. I guess I'll give you a couple. I mean, the first one every, most people know about, and um can't remember the provider right now, but it's Ted Lasso, um, which is about soccer, but it's more about life than soccer. So that that's something great to watch if if some listeners haven't tuned into that. Um, with regard to reading, I have a uh, 
a book for you that is definitely not a bestseller. It's it's called Nor- Norwegian Wood. It's uh, written by Lars Matson, who's um, from Norway, and this is the Scandinavian culture of chopping, stacking, uh, and burning wood. And uh, you learn a little a lot about the Scandinavian culture in reading this book. That incredible recommendation. Excellent. I'm I'm actually deeply interested. Thank you for that. <laughs> No, that the all, the wood comments trumps anything I would ask. So that's amazing. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There you, perfect. Nice. That was exact level. Hit it out of the park. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health for CME at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to the great Malini Gandhi for writing and producing this episode and to our whole team. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. And of course, Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Malini Gandhi. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye.